0: fellow traveller to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination.
1: Welcome to Tent Talks with Stephen Backhouse. My name is Bradley Jersak. I'm a friend of the show, a friend of Stephen, and I'm also the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick, Canada and I am a core faculty member of the Institute for Religion, Peace, and Justice. And you can check us out at irpj.org if you'd consider coming to study with us, or at least finding out what we're about. So I've just released a new book called Out of the Embers, and the subtitle is Faith After the Great Deconstruction. In that book, I'm addressing this overly trendy word that causes me to twitch sometimes, but it is rather a movement right now. And I wanted to address it. And the way I did that was, I want to come in with a different angle that says folks are having different and disorienting experiences and every story needs to be heard. So probably empathy is a much better way to come at this. One part of my book includes what I call seven sleepers who are the great deconstructionists in history. And one of those is Kierkegaard. And of course that led me to check in with Steven because he's my Kierkegaard expert. And one thing that he's also helping me do is is let you know about the book through having a series of four interviews with significant people and in very different worlds, where I'm gonna ask them a series of questions that relate to deconstruction. it's time for our fourth and final interview as you may remember we talked with Brian Zond who leads a big megachurch we talked with David Hayward the naked pastor this the satirist artist and cartoonist and we talked with Felicia Morell, who represents the black community and all three brought very different perspectives to the topic of deconstruction and now we come to Judith Moses she is a seasoned Indigenous political activist in Canada. She's a very powerful administrator and a well-respected federal civil servant. And one of her claims to fame is that she was on the committee that worked with the Prime Ministers of Canada. I say that in the plural. She worked with at least four of them. But she was in this committee that ensured First Nations Charter of Rights got into the Canadian Charter. So when we're talking about uh, the legal rights of Indigenous peoples in Canada, she was at the front lines of that. And she was born on the Six Nations Indian Reserve. And her lifetime of service was recognized with the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal. And so I'm really proud to call her my friend. She's also a chair at St. Stephen's University where I work. So I look to her as a voice of wisdom and, in a sense, a chancellor uh, and ambassador for our university. We could not be more pleased that she is deeply involved in our Indigenous Studies or Reconciliation Studies program as a wise woman and elder. So I think you're going to really find what she has to say profound because uh, she's still a Jesus follower. How can that be? When someone has seen what she's seen in terms of things like the scandalous residential schools and the colonization of Canada. Pardon me if I come across as nervous. I am with a legend and I get a little bit shaky around Judith Moses because she's a true hero of mine and someone I I regard as a key uh, person in Canadian history. She also happens to be a member of the board of St. Stephen's University. And so I'm really, really grateful for that. (laughs) <laughs> Can you share with us a bit about your story? I always love the way First Nations people share their story. It feels rich to me and it feels like it's located and all of that stuff. So
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Brad. And um I won't embellish the introduction anymore, but I will, I will move into my story and some of the other things will will come out. Uh, I like to tell my story in a, in a sense because it takes me back to where I came from. It takes me back to my roots in Six Nations. And the early part of my life that I spent there. And um, uh, so I lived on the reserve until I was five. and we were I was born an Anglican. I mean, the minute I was born, I was I, I was an Anglican and have been steeped in that church uh, ever since. So I w- what I do remember about the reserve life was how lovely and pleasant it was, and how what a terrific feeling it was to be on land that had a deep, 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 deep long history. Uh, now I know that the Six Nations relocated there after you know the War of 1812 and and um, the, and I'm a Delaware member of the Delaware band, uh, on my father's side. And uh, I guess one takes the structure of the reserve for granted. Uh, the way it it was where, you know, the Delaware lived on one road and the Tuscarora lived on the other and the Seneca lived on another. So th- there was always a sense that, that we were different communities, different peoples within one uh, geographical area. But when we moved to Fort Erie, my father was a farmer on the reserve. And when the pasteurization laws were introduced, uh, he couldn't afford to upgrade his equipment. So Uh, We left the farm and uh, we moved to Fort Erie and my father got a job in the factory at uh, Ford Motor Plant in, in Buffalo. But while we were living there, they always referred to the reserve as home. And most weekends we went home. So I grew up with this very strange view about what home is. Home was this piece of land Uh, We called it the bush. (laughs) We're going out to the bush this weekend. That had a very, very special meaning. And as a small child, I didn't really realize what that meant, and I have been trying to deconstruct that in different ways as as an adult. Uh, So there were many different things that became part of my life. I consider myself to be, be bicultural in the sense that I grew up mainly off the reserve, but had a strong connection to the reserve. And just a bit of information about the politics on that reserve, which I only became aware of, again, much later in life. But uh, there is a huge division between the traditionalists in Six Nations and the Christians. And the way that the settlement worked was you really didn't have a choice. So for many, many years, decades, the traditional hereditary chiefs and the Mohawk ways, the 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 ways of the of, of the Haudenosaunee Nation went underground. So the the it, it, and the surface it appeared that we were we had five Anglican churches and one, one reserve, which among other other um, uh, denominations. But it just kind of shows you how the Christian church really came to dominate our lives and the practice of those traditional ceremonies. The artifacts that we had that were traditional, part of the traditional ceremonies were just taken. We, My grandfather, I guess even before I was born, had spent a great deal of time searching for our artifacts that defined our family. We were Turtle Clan, and uh, he did find them. Uh, and he found our what we call our, fa- our false face, which was a very holy, spiritual thing for, for us. So I grew up. As a Christian, but playing with these things and knowing what they meant to a traditional culture. And to me, it was just natural that, you know, I was Turtle Clan and, and uh some of the things we played with. I mean, I just I brought this just to show you. This is um a corn husk doll. And uh the corn husk dolls uh were never given faces because there's a legend that this that this young girl became obsessed with her image in the water, and so. The uh, uh, Great Spirit took away her face, and so after that, the children were all taught uh, modesty and and, and self control. So this was part of how my childhood was shaped. It was a combination of of, of this and going to school in Fort Erie. Um, the talking stick was a big part of the family. So when we had family meetings, the stick went down on the table, and you passed it to the next person. Uh, for them to speak, and I didn't really know what all of that meant. We just did it as children. The various traditional seasons, we always went home for something. We just called it strawberries. I had no idea what strawberries was, but it's a, it's a it's a part of the the seasonal life. And um, even though my family was Christian, my grandparents, we celebrated strawberries, and so, so you know all of that sort of that sort of thing just became a normal part of of of, of my life. I was very fortunate because my maternal uh, grandmother's side, uh, sorry, my paternal grandmother's side, her father was the shopkeeper on our reserve, and the children were never taken away because he was trusted with commerce. My grandmother and her siblings never went to residential schools. My grandfather on my father's side did, went to day school. But he was needed on the farm, so the Mohawk Institute let him go home weekends and even some evenings, and he kept a horse and buggy at school to do that. Um, He doesn't have nice memories of residential school, but um, my grandmother forbid him ever to talk to the grandchildren about it, so I never learned much about it, a couple of things one he was deaf in the left ear because he was beaten by an anglican nun at the church at the school for speaking uh delaware in, in the playground on my mother's side both parents are indigenous uh grandparents are indigenous and um there's no uh non-indigenous blood in that on that side of the family that that i am aware of but they got out of the residential school situation by Going to Buffalo. My grandfather was a Tuscarora, and there's a Tuscarora reserve in uh, Niagara Falls, New York. So he would come, they would come to the reserve in the summer to farm, and then they would go to Buffalo and he would work in roofing or whatever in the winter. So the children, my mother was never sent to residential school, and one of her siblings went, but went by choice. So there are probably very few, if any, Indigenous families in Canada who were not affected by residential schools in terms of the intergenerational trauma. And so I don't know how I managed, you know, to avoid that. Uh, but, but that was not part of, 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 of my upbringing. My parents and grandparents were not, did not go through trauma and, and a healing process that was intergenerational and just about every indigenous person I know, their families have all gone through this in in many ways. So that was one very, very fortunate part. I also later in life became aware that there was a system of government and governance that was imposed on Indigenous people that was contrary to how we traditionally governed ourselves. And I became aware of that when my mother said, we have a choice now of changing our Registration as Indians under the Indian Act to Mohawk, because traditionally the system was was maternal. And the government imposed a paternal system. And so we were on my father's side, Delaware, we became Delaware. But on the maternal side, my grandmother was Mohawk. So we learned later on. And so, as an adult, I don't even know what I am. I don't know if I'm Delaware. I don't know if I'm Mohawk. So, I guess, in in many ways, colonialism has really interfered with who we are. And those are just examples of very, very practical ways that, uh, you know, we've coped. I remember when my father was allowed to go to the liquor store for the first time, I think I was maybe 11, to buy his first case of beer because Indigenous people were not allowed to, to purchase alcohol. Um, I remember when my parents voted for the first time, I went with my parents to vote. We were not allowed to vote before then. So those are all just things that in my childhood that I just kind of were there, took for granted, but only as an adult realized the injustice of it all, of the fact that uh, so many of our traditional ceremonies, that even as Christians we might have practiced, were forbidden and outlawed. And so it's been a real process to try to go back and recover the little bits that 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 I know. I know a few words in Delaware. I know a few words in Mohawk, but my parents and grandparents never spoke the language at home. So not not it was taboo, but it was also I think they wanted the best for their children and then recognized that getting along in a white world was the way to go. Uh, So that's, that's basically how, how, how we were raised. But let me just stop there, because that's, that's kind of the early, the early childhood part that I that I do remember. Just make one other thing that I should, I should mention that I do remember, is believing from a very, very young age that god was white that he was a white man with a with with a big bushy white beard and white hair because that was a minister on our church and many young children confuse the minister with with god and so for me i always thought of god as not looking like us like like the people the brown people on 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 my reserve but again you don't question that as a child you know that's just how it is and you grow up with that. So it wasn't until much later again that I realized that there is a westernized God who is white. And, and we are in the whole process of decolonization. And uh, it, not just for indigenous people, but many other people who are affected by by colonization as well. Uh, Asians and and uh, black, black Anglicans who are really, well, You know, the white God has been imposed on us and and God is what we think God is in that sense. So let me just let me just stop there, Brad.
1: Yeah. Wow. That raises so many important issues. I'll try to distill them, first of all, to to one question. And it's my observation then that that folks like you who've, who've straddled those cultures, who've experienced colonization, working through decolonization, but also you know straddling uh, uh indigenous spirituality and then the christian experience some seem to when they when when they recognize uh what's been imposed on them through Europe, european christianity the deconstruction for them means walking away from it altogether and then i meet other first nations people where somehow they keep the faith and they identify more with you know, Jesus of Nazareth, and I'm wondering what your experience of that is personally in terms of faith. Have you had to expunge faith, or were you able to hold on to some, and how have you integrated that?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, I would just say that every Indigenous person has their own journey, and I, in my journey, is by no means representative or, or being critical of how other Indigenous people are coping. We all do what we have to do, I think it's easier, first of all, being born into a church and having a religious structure uh, imposed on you. I'm always in admiration of people who come to Jesus later in life through a different kind of path. Uh, that wasn't my path. And, and so, uh, you know, having been born with something perhaps causes you not to question it uh, as deeply as one one would. So, so much of my upbringing and my relationship with my grandparents was, 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 was church-based. I mean, the, my grandparents, it was nothing they loved better than having their seven children and all their grandchildren all lined up in, in the pew at church. I, so, you know, the, the pride that went into that I, I, is something that that is is very deep for me. So the Anglican service and the old Book uh, um, of Common Prayer is very much a part of my upbringing. And it is something that is an anchor for me in my life. When I pray, I think of my parents, my grandparents, and even my great grandparents praying the same words. So it it has become important in terms of a cultural connection for me. Having said that, uh, and again, I was raised in an unquestioning society. I went to schools where there were no other Indigenous children in my school. I went to university, and I think there were two Indigenous, there was another Indigenous woman from Six Nations at Guelph when I was there. So I was accustomed to growing up in a white world where no one was asking questions about colonization, why things were the way they were. I did always regret growing up that I didn't know more about my culture. But my parents tried their hardest to, to introduce things. For example, my mother had my grandfather come to my public school when I was in grade two or grade three, and we were studying, you know, the two days on Indians, <laughs> which was mainly here are the structures that they lived in, and here are the nations of the Iroquois of the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, but my grandfather came and he brought the artifacts and he explained what they were and the traditional ceremony so i grew up not having to choose between one or the other they were it was a positive experience for me to have my culture a part of my upbringing i did not grow up with any sense that of shame about my traditional culture except that i only knew so, you know just a tiny bit about it for me that that part was was shameful Six Nations is very different because you cannot be Longhouse and Christian. You have to choose one or the other. And and, um, you can't be admitted to the Longhouse uh, if you don't give up your Christian uh, roots. So so there are many ceremonies that are withheld from Christians in our reserve. And there's a huge split um, between the hereditary chiefs and and the traditionalists and, and the Christians. So it's unfortunate because I don't think that that exists in many other other communities. So my family, starting with my grandfather, and I only learned recently that my grandfather actually had an Indian name before he was he was christened. Um, he never went by it, and I never even knew until I read an anthropological journal that he had one. um but it was a conscious choice to be a good Christian in my family growing up. My parents and my grandparents were pillars of the church you know which meant that they 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 cared about the church they took care of it they were part of of everything that that made a successful congregation so that was that was how how I was raised um and it isn't really until maybe the last 15 or 20 years that we began to question some of this and i'll tell you when i uh, joined the federal government back in 1972 or 73 i think it was I had a choice. I had a lot of Indigenous friends in Ottawa at that time, and I had a choice between going with them to Wounded Knee or staying in the federal government. And I really thought it through and I decided I was going to stay. And I thought I could make more change inside of a system than I can going to Wounded Knee and camping out with my friends. And so I was rejected at a very young age by the indigenous community that I was a part of as a young person, a young adult, um, which was very harmful and very stressful. So in that growing up, there were choices to be made. You were indigenous in their way or no way. And and so those were choices that I that I had to make. And it's not that I rejected my indigenous culture heritage. It's just that I had to choose a path that no one else was choosing at the time. And um, so uh, there were very few role models. I had a cousin, Russ Moses, who worked as executive assistant to Jean Chrétien when he was Minister of Indian and Northern Affairs. And there was another person, um, Gilbert Montour, who was a PhD scientist, who was an assistant deputy minister at Energy Mines and Resources, but by and large, there weren't models. I was the 50th graduate of university in the history of the country when I graduated. So for me, it was a a pretty much an unquestioning thing until the the political movement started in Canada, with the creation of the National Indian Brotherhood and the criticism of the the white paper of 1967. So there was an awareness, a political awareness that began to, to, to grow. So my Questioning began with the political awareness side of things, not with a religious side of things. And it's grown over the years. I mean, the, the sense of injustice that I blindly looked past in younger days, I cannot look past anymore. And that was a growth. It was a growing experience because I I was like most non-Indigenous Canadians in terms of not recognizing the injustice and not internalizing a fact of our history that we just did not discuss at at that time. And many indigenous people still don't don't want to go back. They just want to be where they are today. But I really believe that we can't go forward until we recover as much as we can about our past. So so back to your to your to your question, uh, I mean, I can either accept the Anglican House. As it is right now, it's, you know, a house with 10 rooms and a front door and a back door. Or I can say, well, this house needs renovation. Or I can say this house needs serious renovation, maybe demolition, and an addition put onto it. So, you know, those are kind of the, the, the choices um, of, of of what has to happen. Where I come down on that, I guess, is maybe more in the middle, because I really don't think that tearing down an institution, and rebuilding it can be done in my lifetime. I'm trying to do what I can do. Um, that's not to say that there isn't need for profound change. But I think I prefer to make the change as I did in joining government from within, rather than leave and let somebody else make, make the change. So that's kind of a personal commitment that I made to myself and to my my, my mother. My father was less... Less interested in reforming the church, he was much more interested in the collection plate and cutting the grass. My mother was much more of an activist, and you know, whenever I do indigenous things, I always wear something that 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 she made because it, it gives me strength. Does that does that lead to to great turmoil and incompatibility? Absolutely. I was a, a senior manager in government, I was assistant senior assistant deputy minister at Agriculture Canada was my last big job. At one point, I did a leadership uh, course, the, some fancy Boston uh, course, and I got the highest score that they'd ever scored on tolerance for ambiguity. And <laughs> um, so that <laughs> it shows you, though, what it takes to be an indigenous person and and live through through all of this contradiction. A lot of indigenous people can't, won't. I've 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 tried to do it as much much as I can. And make the changes that I'm capable of making, uh, use the fact that I am bicultural and I have made a career of instigating large systemic change across across government in many, many different ways, and understand how to get things done, how to organize things. Uh, And I'm an amazing writer. I mean, God has given me that ability. So I just do what I can do. And, and uh, yes, I mean, there are days I think this is hopeless, but more often I, I am, I think inspired by what needs to be done and working with some amazing indigenous people uh, with very, very deep faith as well as uh, strong roots in their culture and language and community. So with all of that, I, I find that as a, as a, as an indigenous team, you know, I, I, the people I work with, uh, we kind of see it as a, kind of like a a jigsaw puzzle. Everybody has a piece, everybody has a role, and they're all essential parts of the the whole picture. So different people will do different things to contribute to change. So I know what my little role is.
1: Yeah. Your little role. (laughs) I think probably your capacity for having the long view and your and your ability to to stick with it for this many decades—we're uh, talking five decades here. Yeah, more, you would have been more, more than more, that. More than that. You would have been you would have been perhaps hopeless if, if, if you had had just like what can get done in three months, what can get done in six yeah. months. But the fruitfulness of your work, I think, verifies the wisdom of your choices in this. Could you just tell us uh, about the? I mentioned the charter and your role in that. Um, for those who are not even from Canada that will listen to this, can you explain what what that was about and your part in it? Oh, do
0: you mean do you mean the the Anglican Our Way of Life document? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, or, or the, the or the
1: Charter of oh, Rights or the
0: government Charter of Rights and Freedoms. <laughs>
1: uh, so, I mean, that's a good example where you've done all the, the the civil service work and the religious work. I think maybe yeah. if you have time to share both, it would be really wonderful because now we're talking about construction, reconstruction, um, and and really facing into the hard stuff, dismantling the secrecy, noticing and and being willing to look at the injustices, and then building something important.
0: One of the things that working in government has given me uh, is an opportunity to recognize and realize that human beings can make change, that these, our laws are not immutable, our systems are not immutable. And and so I've always been very change-oriented, and one of the reasons I joined government was not to conform, but to live my identity as an Indigenous person in a different way, inside of the system rather than outside of the system. I have to say, I mean, I never got up every morning thinking, you know, this is an Indigenous person going to work to make change. It wasn't like that at all. But I did have to early on make choices whether I was going to go off with my friends to wounded knee or I was going to stay in government and try to make a difference. And so it's a very conscious choice for me to, um, to stay. I lost a lot of friends over it. All my friends within the American Indian Movement who went to Wounded Knee, I, I, they, they never spoke to me again. So it's a very lonely time um, in my early adulthood when that, when that happened. But, um, but stay. So I, I was even more determined, I think, because of that, to stay and to make make changes within that that system. And I started off working uh, in Indian and Northern Affairs, and I thought. I'm going to figure out how government works, and I'm going to become an expert at making change in this system. And so I deliberately set out to do that. I I I was a sponge for learning how things got done. I was always a good writer, and government is a place of the written word, so I excelled in that. I read legislation. I read the the laws that that govern things, and, and most civil servants, I'm sure, don't even read the legislation that governs the work that they do. But I became an expert um, in, in that and the and, uh, machinery of government uh, and, and actually ended up working in the Privy Council office in something called machinery of government, which is making the whole big system work well. I, I tried to, to make a difference. I was the only Indigenous person in most instances. There were very few other Indigenous people in government at the time. Um, I had one other friend um, who um, was uh, an ambassador at foreign affairs. He was indigenous. And, you know, there were a small group of us who who did get together occasionally. So there's a little bit of a, of an indigenous club. Um, And I was always chosen to lead uh, employment equity issue, uh, you know, task forces for indigenous employment, you know, that's okay. I mean, I did, you know, I did, did all of that. And, 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 and at the end of the day, moved towards trying to make big structural changes, systemic changes in, in, in government. And that led me to doing some work in the Constitution, doing a consultation with the provinces about charter provisions. So that became a part of how I did things. But having said that, I was never an advocate inside of the system. I mean, you had to, you had to do things properly. And it did not to be an Indigenous advocate. I was a public servant. I was loyal to the job and and the Canadian public writ large, but I had a special sensitivity towards Indigenous issues, and that's how I kind of looked at it. So I kind of lost track of the question, but it was always a challenge to bridge an Indigenous world and a non-Indigenous world, and I felt that I had mastered the non-Indigenous way of operating such that i could i could affect big big systemic changes in government which i was which i was a part of and so how did that work for indigenous people i don't know i don't think the history is really in there yet i think there are a lot of indigenous people who would not work for the federal government but my view was best way to make changes is from within so that's that's kind of what i what i tried to do
1: yeah and so the result of which is there there are indigenous rights enshrined in the charter
0: Yes, yeah, so I did the first round of consultations with the provinces on on Indigenous uh, rights, and th- it, then it became a you know a big part of the government's uh, agenda. And ind- Indigenous political leaders were very active at at that time. Uh, but I had a, a role in the early part of getting that work uh, launched. It was in a very important part of my my life to see. Uh, those kinds of changes. So I remember being at one point. I worked in the Privy Council Office in the Langevin Block at a time when there were demonstrations around Indigenous rights and enshrining them in the Constitution. Out in the street was my mother marching, and here I am in you know the bastion of of public service, <laughs> the Langevin Block in Ottawa. Um, being an insider. And so it was always stressful, um, you know, in the sense of who do I work for? Who, who, why am I doing this? And I had to adopt a long goal because change isn't made overnight. And I, I could have been much more of, um, of a rebel and an advocate, but I wouldn't have succeeded in public service without playing the game. You know? So, so yeah. I learned it very well. And, and, uh, learn to make some changes. Uh, I mean, history will tell whether they were useful changes or not.
1: And so maybe just uh, one last question. And if, you know, again, you really have gone through a series of choices and deconstructions and reconstructions and straddling and tolerance for ambiguity and all of that. And, And you could have walked away from Christianity, you could have walked away from the Anglican church and its participation in the in the residential schools and yet you also refused to turn away and you and you mentioned something about about what you've done even with the structure of the anglican church can you tell us about that you mentioned the house
0: yes and and i i mean i um <clears throat> i recognized that um, i was investing a lot of my uh energy and self-worth in being a good public servant uh, and what that meant was making change from within and I guess it's become a bit of a mantra of mine in life is to to do it that way, uh, to be to make the change from the inside rather than the outside. And so it, it it is perhaps maybe not as personally rewarding doing it on the inside because you're 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 playing a lot, lot of games. you' you're you're having to conform to, you know, how cabinet documents get written and and get put before cabinet ministers to 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 master that side of 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 government is to make fundamental change and so that was something that i felt that i that i had invested in and i think that uh, when i as i look back i think there are many things that i had accomplished did i do everything i wanted to do absolutely not and my work in the church which was always active became even more active uh as i as i aged and especially after i left left government when i didn't have all these conflicts of of interest to, to to deal with i mean making change has is 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 um it's a long process and you have to see the end the end goal and i've personally decided that i my my skill is at making systemic change happen rather than doing it in other other kinds of ways so I mean, at one time, uh, you know, there were many Indigenous people who would have accused me and did accuse me of being a sellout. You're part of the system. I think today, gratefully, there is a lot more acknowledgement that as Indigenous people, we're a big community. Uh, we're not status and non-status and Métis and and urban and rural. We are a large people. And over the years, government had divided us a lot along those lines. And so today, there's a lot more tolerance for different people, indigenous people who play different roles in making change. Um, But I was rejected by many indigenous communities for a long time. I worked for the Minister of Indian and Northern Affairs and you either loved me or you hated me and there were a lot of indigenous people who just saw the minister of indian and northern affairs as the enemy and so i have i've had to i've had to make tough choices about about being a part of of a, of a of a system that many people saw as as oppressive and it is it still is we're not there yet um but the church uh uh is not separate from those kinds of forces. We still have a conservatism, we still have a lectionary that is fairly rigid and and so there are still there's still a lot of work uh, to be done in the church as, as an institution. And um, I've enjoyed talking with other indigenous people in other denominations than Anglican about how how that gets done. We're all at different places in 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 the journey. So, one of the things that I've had to recognize, and it's been a little bit difficult for me because I did not personally have this experience, is to be part of a healing process for the Indigenous people who have suffered a lot under the residential school system um, and, and, and churches in, in general. Coming back to your question, that I think that's where the rubber hits the road on your, your question for me.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, where, where am I in that dilemma? and i think where i've come out in that dilemma is is really to try to affect the structural and the systemic changes that are, are 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 needed and that that includes um the anglican church opening up and becoming more indigenous it means practicing it means um embracing indigenous spirituality not rejecting it as pagan and and so have i succeeded in that i mean a time Time will tell, and I'm certainly not alone in that. There's a, a large indigenous contingent who believe the same things that we believe. That uh, God has called us in different ways to do different things. That's that's what we're we're trying to do. Uh, we are not patient uh, forever. We will not be patient forever. I think that the indigenous people I'm working with right now want to be part of the Anglican Church, but we want to have an indigenous Anglican church. If that should fail to materialize, I would hope, I don't have grandchildren yet, but I would hope if I did have grandchildren, that they would make the right decision about perhaps leaving the Anglican Church. Uh, maybe we have more in common as Indigenous people practicing our own form of, of, of Christianity. And, you know, as we look through restructuring of churches, you know, going forward, you know, all of the churches, Christianity is going through, uh, you know, major time right now in in society. I mean, maybe there will be something in the future that it will be Christianity through an Indigenous lens rather than the other way around. So I can't write the future. <laughs> but I am prepared, I think, with the work that I'm doing right now to see a different future than the one I'm working on. Um, if my children, children's children, and the ancestors, think that that's the right thing to do. Oh,
1: Judas, that is that is awesome. I I feel cleansed right now <laughs> talking to the way I did when um I was part of the smudging ceremony that you and the elder did out at St. Stephen and there it is, right? Like uh what I don't hear in you is is us them animosity that will bury any chance of uh, of reconciliation, but I also see that you have an eye to the future and what's best. And um, I'm so mm-hmm. grateful for you.
0: Can I just add one thing about St Stephens University? Um, because I think it's it's uh, it's a it's a it's a very, very worthy experiment um to focus on uh, indigenous learning um with non-indigenous people. and and as an indigenous community, we've been so, focused on recovering ourselves and healing, um, that we maybe haven't done as much as we should do about building the bridges with our non-Indigenous partners, we, but we can't do this alone. Reconciliation means two partners. And so St. Stephen's University has gratefully um, seen the need to produce uh, uh, graduates who are sensitive to, attuned to indigenous ways, indigenous cultures, and are prepared to be good partners and relatives of, of indigenous people going forward because we need to work together on this. And so I think uh, it's a small university, but I think it's on the forefront of recognizing that indigenous studies aren't just for indigenous people, <laughs> um, that we have a job to do in society. And the job is to make sure that we have uh, learned uh, non-indigenous partners to walk with us. Thanks
1: so much, Judith. I, I appreciate the time that you took. Definitely worth the wait, and um, I'm I'm just very grateful for you. So uh, blessings on your day, and I know I'll be and seeing the same you, to you later,
0: you Brad. Thank and, you. Yeah. and thank you for all that you do. Take care. Bye bye.
1: Well, all right. Welcome back. This is Brad Jursak and this is my fourth installment in the Deconstruction Series with Stephen Backhouse.
2: Oh, thanks Brad for doing this series. I love that you talk to all these interesting people. And thanks for inviting me into this part of the show as well. Yeah, lucky that you that you own the show. So <laughs>
1: I what, a, what what a privilege for me to guest host. That's been really really fun and um and enriching. And it turns out that, you know, I learned a lot of new stuff that I hadn't even thought about while I was writing the Out of the Embers book. This These conversations just generate something magical, I think, um, revelatory, whatever you want to call it. So um, today's episode was with Judith Moses. And so the, our listeners will have heard that She's a wonderful First Nations woman who's had a major influence in Canada, particularly with getting Indigenous rights into our charter. And she worked with four different prime ministers to do that. And so she's kind of a big deal, but super humble. Just to give a bird's eye view. So I started with Brian Zond, who's the pastor of a church. Then I had David Hayward, who's like totally not into Omega church. Almost the opposite of Brian in many of his perspectives, uh, but runs this. He, he he's in denial that he's a you know that he has a community. He's got with a the community. Yeah. yeah, he he has his lasting supper community online, of full of deconstruction kind of oriented people. And then last week uh, I talked with Felicia Morel from the from the Black community, God's Black Voice. And then this week, Judith Moses, is she represents the First Nations community. And what's so interesting about her in terms of both the crises that we talked about last week and what's coming down the road is she would still see herself as a Jesus-following First Nations person who doesn't identify Jesus with colonial European Christendom but deeply i identifies with the brown man from palestine who spoke about liberation and and pushed back at empire and one of the crises she ran, runs into is is actually being treated as a as a betrayer like so there's some in her community where it's like if you don't it, it, the decolonization means you have to renounce jesus and she's like no i don't and then pro, even white progressive people uh, saying to her, learn your history, and she's like, she lived her history. How arrogant! What are they doing? They're trying to—they're trying to colonize her again, right? To what European progressivism?
2: Yeah, yeah of course.
1: <laughs> so how ironic, right? Yeah. How do you think that might segue to our conversation? Now? Well, what we're you- we're
2: going through the four questions, right? We've, yeah, we've, we've that's right. We've asked each of your guests four questions, and so for the last four of these little debrief session segments we've been just looking at one of those questions so what was the first one it was kind of like like
1: definitions and metaphors how do you see yeah experience deconstruction and then other words
2: who are the key people in your life that might have been an influence in that we asked a question about yes that was your past where's your past and then we asked where's your present where are you at now so i'm guessing i'm going to put on my fortune teller hat and say (laughs) Are you going to ask about the future? Is that your fourth question? Yes. And you just keep that fortune teller hat on because right. you're going to need it for the
1: next little bit. And the way I worded this question to the guests was, of course, based on your observations and intuitions. So it's things they see, but also their gut feeling about it. Mm. What do you foresee or even suspect we might need to prepare for down the road in the next few decades? What is being baked? And I have to give credit where it's due. Stephen came up with this question. (laughs) What is being baked into our future right now? And how can we begin to ready a healthy response rather than a knee jerk reaction? And I have to say what I loved about that question is when I read people like Dostoevsky and Nietzsche, they are looking ahead into the next 100 to 200 years. Yeah. And what I see these days is it's so unthoughtful, quite yeah. often. Yeah, for sure. That the only responses are are uh, news cycle meme knee jerk responses that mm-hmm. and that like and I'm supposed to care about everything mm-hmm. and everything switches every forty eight hours. And, and your profile
2: and your Instagram and that's it. Yeah, yeah.
1: And yeah. then it, that in, that that absolutely ensures that it's going to be just performative. Yeah, and I'm like, uh, but maybe you could look at what's coming. Tell me about the next two decades. What do you see being baked in now? How do you respond?
2: <laughs> well, if anybody's listened to this podcast before, they'll know that I have a few notes that I strike over and over again. But good. <laughs> I mean, the whole the whole tent theology podcast, tent talks podcast, started because of nationalism, because of Christian nationalism. Yeah, and. I think coming down and and also, by the way, a huge reason why we have the deconstruction moments that we're having now, especially amongst evangelicals and charismatics is because of Trump and the Trump, the Trumpy movement, like the, the -hmm. wholesale embrace of bullying nationalism. Yeah. Amongst, I mean, you line up 10 evangelicals in America and nine of them are MAGA Trumpists, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's, that is a number you don't come back from. That's catastrophic in terms of sociology and history right That's a movement that has been taken over yeah and or it's been revealed and it was always there. Some of us that have been students of nationalism know that that has that aspect was always latent but so these and even are,
1: unapologetically identifying that way right well, like this, this maybe is what 10 I
2: wanted this, since, this is what I wanted to get at is like 10 years ago you wouldn't say you were a nationalist. you would say, no. oh I'm a Patriot. Yeah. or something you try and find a euphemism and what we've seen in the last five or six years is double down wild-eyed open-handed enthusiasm embrace of these terms mm-hmm. and um and that is not going to stop that is getting stronger and stronger and that mm-hmm. is taking has taken over it has taken over the charismatic and the evangelical wings certainly and it's also huge amongst roman catholics um you talked about in in your eastern orthodox traditions absolutely nationalism russia Russia is a is a christian nationalist empire right now and yeah it's a christian nationalist war that's being fought so uh so christian nationalism is not going away it is stronger than ever
1: other religions too right hindu nationalism
2: yeah but we're yes uh, right but it's it's the nationalism right it's the nationalism is is not going away and christians all around the world and not mm. only they're not fringe these are the ones with the most money the most populations the most yep. printing presses universities television stations wow the the most established forms of christianity are the most nationalist okay
1: Wow! yeah
2: this is not going away it's dominant it's dominant and it's becoming mainstream or oh, it's yep. already mainstream amongst these groups. So we really have to think like we are and there are lots of situations now where you either are a Christian or you are a follower of Jesus and you cannot be both. Right. right? And, and we're seeing a lot of people are realizing that, which is part of the deconstruction movement that I'm recognizing. Um, And it's not because these people are becoming secular liberals. It's because they're saying Wow, I cannot be a follower of Jesus and continue to call myself a Christian. They look around at everyone who's flying their maga flags. Yeah, and, Let's and pause and for a moment. What guns?
1: Yeah, I, I want to pause for a moment, even on the difference between patriotism and nationalism, because my understanding is that patriotism is about your your state. Right, the United States of America—that a commitment to that. But nationalism goes goes further into it's racial as well, right? So when when yeah. Hitler when Hitler's Nash nationalism was not just the state of Germany, but it was Germanic people. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: In yeah. Russia, it's not just Russia; it's anywhere that there's the Russian people. Yeah, for sure. In yeah, America. It says that ethno that like
2: nationalism. They could will call it maybe, or it's, yeah, it's a yeah. culture. And, yeah,
1: and 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 yeah. And my punchline is in in America, I'm seeing that as white, yes, Christian yes. nationalism. And,
2: and we're going to see that. We're going to see that's already becoming quite well. Uh, you hear that talked about a lot. You're going to see that more and more being talked about from more and more mainstream platforms. You're going to see white Christian identity. You're going to see overt, you already see it, but you're going to see it even more overt militarism. Mm-hmm. You're, you're going to see these things, right? We already see it. Like, you're absolutely yeah. blind if you don't recognize that's happening. So, mm-hmm. I guess what I'm just trying to say is like, think ahead. Like, I've often thought about it, like, overall, uh, church affiliation with Christianity is shrinking and the church membership is dropping. Okay. Yeah. So, overall, the trend is going that Christianity is losing its footing. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, think about a ship when a ship sinks yeah and and it, and, it, and it there's always like one end of it that is the last to go down right yeah guess who guess who congregates at that end of the ship guess what congregates at that end of the ship before it sinks i don't know do tell the rats oh dear <laughs> so if you were a rat and your ship was sinking and you looked around you're like wow we must be doing something right there's so many rats around right now <laughs> Oh, it's the favor of God. <laughs> our, our, our popular, look at it. I found this little spot and now there's 1300 rats around me. We must be doing something right. Wow. Wow. But they're just congregating around a sinking ship. Yeah. And I think that's also coming. And I think, and as the ship gets more and more sinking, as Christianity loses in more and more of its cultural power that it should have never had in the first place, but has had. Those fearful, angry voices will get even more energized. More Mm. and more people will flock to their churches, but they represent less and less of an overall population.
1: And they'll see it as a purified remnant, in fact, which is super dangerous.
2: These angry, fearful, paranoid nationalisms are not going away. Yeah. And I'm thinking about that. And what are we going to do about that? Yeah.
1: Let me run two points about that by you. for your response um so one of them i just saw a pew poll recently and and it it was people who identify as evangelical so when you and i say evangelical we're imagining a particular kind of church service with people in it and in america it was now up to 42 percent do not who say i'm an evangelical attend church less than once a year so that means it's now a primarily what a political yeah it is yeah no no they've
2: they, they've there's been a bump in people identifying as evangelical because they are trumpists yeah
1: even though they're not going to church that's interesting yeah, yeah. right because so,
2: evangelical now means that type of
1: it means mega american white yeah. culture warrior yeah 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 the other thing, and this, this took me aback a little bit. So Lisa Sharon Harper is is one of I'm the... A, yeah, friend know. of the show. She's been on Tent many times. My goodness, times what though, yeah. a woman. Yeah. So my first encounter with her, she challenged us at a conference in, in Florida with, um was it or New Orleans? I, I Zoomed in, so I don't remember. New Orleans called, um I think it was sort of I- Inevitable Conversations or mm-hmm. what was it called? And she said this. For those who are leaving the church because of white Christian nationalism, who are leaving without investigating the black church and its faith, yeah, leaving without doing so is still an act of white nationalism. What it, white supremacy is what she said. It's white. Okay. So she said it's white supremacy to leave the church over white supremacy without checking into the black. Oh, church. that's interesting. I, yeah. I right. That was a, like, Ooh, touche Lisa. <laughs> Tell what's your experience of her. She seems like magnificent
2: to me. Oh yeah. I love her. Yeah. No, I, I, I love her book as well. Fortune. It's, I really recommend it. What's it called? Sorry. Fortune. Which Fortune. Is, yeah. It's just the story of one of her ancestors and she sort of traces her family lineage and, she, she, she through the story through telling her family's story she's telling the story of America yeah brilliant book yeah
1: anything so else forthcoming that you need to warn us about <laughs> well, actually before well, you do like what's your response to That like certainly we can't just go try to overtake it again right we're not going to take back the monster no no and, and
2: this is what I, I this is partly what I this is like learn to live as a loser right and I, and um for too long like what we're seeing now with the with the kind of poisonous christian culture is an entitlement to rule like christians are deeply entitled they think that they are entitled to rule especially white. uh, let's be specific white christians think they are entitled to rule and they're like if i live in my culture of course i should be running it or of course i should be in the seven positions of influence of course i should be on the boards right
1: (laughs) the seven mountains seven mountains mountains
2: and all that yeah Yeah, Uh, the dominionism is is just a deeply rooted entitlement to rule and Mm. i think that if you are a jesus person you have to get used to being a loser and that we're going to have to start to find what it's like once again to not be the powerful winners in this world um so that's something, but also there's joy in that. And that's, that's good. Like that's a good place to be actually. So even if it's painful or whatever. So I, I, I do feel like that, that we're going to start to learn to live again, uh, free of the, free of the, the anchor of also having to run a culture,
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You hallelujah
2: know, <laughs> and and then, yeah, and there's lots more we could say about that, but uh, you know we we have we have experienced Christendom, we've experienced times when everybody called themselves a Christian, and they they weren't it wasn't a utopia of followers of Jesus. I'd just like to point that out, <laughs> so you know, Christendom is not the solution to to Jesus people, so you know, I think it was as we get rid of some of those illusions we and we're gonna find a much bigger Division line between Jesus people and Christians. Yeah, more more obviously so. Yeah, yeah. And the, know, the Jesus people will be the minority. Yeah, and we'll also find that the when and, and Jesus people absolutely will be persecuted. But right now, the most likely group that will persecute them is other is Christians. Yeah, yeah. And so we'll we'll have to we'll watch out for that. Yeah, it's not like super positive in that sense. I'm not like filled with joy about it but i also see it as well it took a couple thousand years to build christendom it hasn't been that great so actually it's good that we're finally shedding that
1: yeah it's even blessed to be the minority report because that is the tradition micah amos jesus you know they, Back the, to the being minority prophets, report then. and and that that could be when you don't think you have to be on top anymore, then that's not as dire of an outlook. It's like, uh, blessed are you when, when men revile you, persecute you, say all kinds of things against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they treated the prophets who came before you. Like, you're, you're in a good movement. If you want a movement, there's a movement. The Minority Report. Starring. Tom Cruise.
2: <laughs> no, uh, starring Jesus. <laughs> and Kierkegaard. Where do, where, where do you think the future is, Brad? Let's let's end on you. Let's end, let's give you the final word. What do you think the, the future is coming? What's coming down the pike?
1: I would say on the negative end, it's exactly what you're describing. I'm seeing the very same thing for sure. Um and then and then just if we could fill out the positive side of that, it would mean. That we're going to be, it's gonna. I think we're going to become able to have eyes to see the new forms in which the two or three or twelve gathered yes. looks like in yes. a way that transforms us. For me personally, you know, I I've alluded to the fact that I I'm part of a twelve step community, and what I love about it is it, we don't do Christianity there. Some people are Christians and some are not, but all of them are people who are. Experience God as real to them, in a way that is transformative, and then um, we can both share our convictions and offer generosity. So I'm allowed to say my higher power is Jesus, and here's why: because because I need a God with wounds in His hands, my wounds in His hands. And then the next guy says, "Well, I'm an agnostic, but I know this: whatever God is, He's in me, and He's in you, and He's here right now, and I'm a miracle because I have an act acted out for three years and like that kind of a form then where where they've they've actually molded their 12 traditions around how to prevent it from becoming christendom it is really inspired but what if there's hundreds of these different forms and we'll just begin to recognize them in a way we haven't because we've been so fixated on the brick and mortar church yes that's good maybe even podcasts (laughs) you might
2: start to find fellow travelers you and i found each other so that's something i know right no it's i have to say it's i've i've had even better and more meaningful friendships uh, in the last five years than far from far from leaving behind all fellowship i've actually finding i've got better friendships in terms of faith and a christ-like life from from other people
1: could you could Could we maybe close off with you giving the listeners a hint of how to find that if they haven't? What's the first step in finding the the those you found?
2: Well, it is quite. It's so much easier these days to find voices. I mean, yes, there's echo chambers. So yes, obviously that's. But there's also people who are (laughs) like who who are all on the similar journey and they've they've typed in the same keywords into the same search bar that you did and they found okay. these groups and so it is possible you know if you've enjoyed some of the voices on the the tent podcast for example like seek them out you know the, yeah. the same people that like brian zand are going to be the same people that you might like you know and it's it's easier than ever these days to find if you like lisa sharon harper she's got she does weekly you know Instagram live stuff. like it's very easy, actually, to find these people now and to be plugged into them and um and then you find people that they like and stuff and uh, and I've watched it in the last five years or so since starting this podcast, or I haven't started the podcast five years. It's been going for three years, two and a half years, but i've I've watched like communities grow and friendships develop through that they've met through this podcast. Some even in person, hey? Some in person and some online. And I, and I, because I'm also on Instagram and I can see or whatever, you know, I can see that, oh, how do they know each other? Oh, yeah, look at that. They found each other through this podcast. That's really know? good. And so it just happens and it's sort of organic, but it's definitely happening. So that would, I would just leave that. I would say, you know, there's, there's stuff. I mean, we, we do it here on the podcast. We have the Patreon supporters. Yep. Are part of a fellow traveler group, and we meet once a month. We always meet and we, we meet up online, and there's always a half a dozen of us, and we sort of chat together and have some special guests come and talk to us and stuff. And, you know, it's happening. It happens. So.
1: Yes. Despair not, everyone. The future actually has some bright spots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we'll thank have you, over you again to for having me.
2: Yeah, right? I mean, why don't we do a live? We'll have to do some sort of Brad Jurzak live event. So either you come to England or I come to BC and we'll we'll figure out a way to do that, you know. would that be lovely? Yeah. Oh, man. Well, thanks, brother. Thanks for doing this series with us. Uh, it's been really an honour to have you as a guest host on The Tents. So we'll see you soon. My pleasure. Thanks. Okay, bye.
0: Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page, or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.